stop talking, get in your place. How's everybody tonight? All right, that's, that's awesome. Well, uh, we had a great day, man. I wish that all of you didn't have to work so that you could be here. Uh, the, Brother James and Brother Joe did an awesome job uh, this morning, and I would encourage you that, uh, you know, this is going to be online. I would encourage you to get those messages. Um, I, I, again, this subject of the local church, I think it's just something that we kind of go, duh, but I don't know that it's the really a duh. There's a lot of depth in this, and the fellows uh, brought it uh, this morning. Uh, so last night, I took quite a bit of time to just kind of, at the beginning, uh, try to establish the premise that I was going to be working from uh, in the evenings. And basically, everything that we looked at in that introduction, uh, I rolled over in the middle of the night about 3.30, and 11 words came to my mind. And I was thinking, wow, I, I can summarize that whole 20 minutes of introduction in 11 words, and I know what you're thinking right now. <laughs> you sorry, no good, hell-deserving, low-down. Okay, I'm back. Um, but if, if I would have given you the 11 words and we would have moved on from that, you might have said, oh, wait, how did we get here? But basically, what we tried to establish last night is that as the church, the body of Christ, here's the 11 words, we do what we do because Christ is who he is. See, now if I would have said that last night, you would have been going, what planet is this dude from? Okay, we do what we do as the body of Christ because he is who he is. And what I was trying to say last night is we don't have the luxury of picking our philosophy of ministry. <laughs> it's been dictated to us because we are this crazy thing. We are the church. And last night, we, uh, and, and of course this morning, I mean, every time we talk, we're going to be talking about the implications and the ramifications of the fact that the Lord refers to us in the New Testament, he refers to us as his body. It's not just random terminology. Oh, what do you think we should call it? No, no. it was by design. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, says that the Father hath put all things under his feet, that is Christ, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. Okay, he was here in an earthly body. And, and what this is saying is, and the church isn't just like his body. The church is his body, the fullness of him. You hear that? The church, the fullness of him that filleth all in all, which is to say that the Father intended that we fully 
put him, that is Christ, in all of his fullness, the intention of the Father is that we now display who he is as representative of the Godhead, that we put him on display in the world. And we saw last night that as Christ was about to come into this world, into Bethlehem, he and the Father had a conversation about what was getting ready to happen down on the earth. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, at the end of verse 5, look at it, it says, A body hast thou thou hast prepared me. And at that point, and I think this is where we'll pick up in our notes, that body that had been prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ was in the womb of a young Jewish maiden. And the purpose that God had in preparing that body that the Lord Jesus Christ would live in for 33 and a half years Though uh, Through that individual physical body, the plan of God was that he would put on display who God actually is in this world. To put the attributes of deity on display so he could reach the world with the gospel. And again, for a period of 33 and a half years, he did just that. But then we come along and in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, Christ is with the fellas and all of a sudden, now he, he's already resurrected and been with them for 40 days at this point. But in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, Christ ascended bodily back to his throne at the Father's right hand. But then as we continue on through the book of Acts, through a lot of transitions that are taking place in the book, what we find is that God was in the midst of preparing another body. The, another body of Christ. An, another body of Christ. Do you hear that? Not another individual physical body, but the corporate spiritual body known as the church. And as his spiritual body... Not only do we receive the same description in terms of our title, okay? We are the body of Christ. But we also receive the same job description. And now God wants to use us to put the attributes of deity on display so that we can reach the world with the gospel. And so we began last night to look at just how it is that the New Testament tells us that we, the body of Christ, actually put these attributes on display. And uh, the whole premise for our study in the evening session, sessions is essentially this. However it is that God designed that we, as the body of Christ, are to put Christ's attributes on display, those things become that for which we must embrace in uncompromising priority. And, and this is what we were uh, trying to establish last night, that if we can actually figure out how we put the attributes of deity on display, however we're to do that becomes 
our core values. It must be our core values. I, I, th I, th I think that basically, if we really get down to it, that biblically, if a church is going to try to function biblically, they're going to end up with the same core values. You know what? One of the one of the coolest things that in in my ministry happened many years ago now. Uh, uh, I I was hearing about uh, this missionary uh, in Al Albania. Have you ever known any missionaries from Albania? Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I was hearing about this missionary in Albania by the name of Jeff Bartell. And uh, people that had been over there and came to this place, to this local body of believers, started to say, hey, do you know Jeff Bartell over in Albania? And I'm like, I, you know, I've heard of him, but I, you know, we've never met. Uh, and wow, that's just amazing to me. Because that church over there in Albania, it's, it's exactly like this church here. And I started hearing that from numerous people. And, I, I, and I, I began to think, you know what? That wouldn't make sense because we're singing off of the same sheet of music. <laughs> we're holding the same book. And God doesn't have this purpose for this church and this purpose for this church certainly uh has anybody noticed that my personality and pastor jeff's personality are like polar opposites <laughs> you know he's the nicest guy in the world and i'm the meanest guy in the world and uh and yet when it comes to ministry wow Every core value that I have, you guys had that same core value over in Albania, and that's why this has worked, y'all. That's why God brought this guy in, because of the values that were set for us, not because we invented them, but because we're the body of Christ. We go to this book and we see how it is that the body of Christ is to function, how we're to put Christ on display in the world, and however it is that we put him on display, that is what we better hang on to, hold fast to, and never let go of. And, and last night, we started looking at the first attribute that Christ himself in that earthly physical human body that he put on display and ultimately is to be the first priority of the church we saw last night that because christ is the word of god we must embrace an uncompromising priority on expository preaching now if you weren't here last night boy that sounds like a leap but what we did is we just carefully saw exactly how God designed that the body of Christ function when it comes to this book. And he lays it out for us very, very clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And that's what we looked at last night. Now tonight we're going to look at the next two attributes and the next two priorities of the church. And this second one is this. 
because Christ is the image of God, and again, this is going to sound like a leap until we get into it, (laughs) but we must embrace an uncompromising priority on biblical discipleship. You know, we, we're a part of a fellowship of churches that is very like-minded. And again, we can extend uh, our core values throughout the churches in the Living Faith Fellowship. The, th- the reason we fellowship together is because of the core values that we have. And one of those core values is certainly biblical discipleship, but it's not because we invented that. <laughs> It's because it is mandated to us because we are the body of Christ. And let me show you how we get here. Okay, so by the time the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, I think you get this, but the world was so steeped in sin, we had absolutely no idea who the God of the Bible actually was. This is why Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 says there's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. When it came to God, y'all, sin had left all of us so totally clueless, spiritually speaking. We had no way of comprehending just how glorious the God of the Bible actually is. And, And part of God's will through that body that had been prepared in the womb of that young virgin was to put the attributes of deity on display and we saw last night in john chapter 1 and verse 1 that that christ is the word notice the word with a capital w and as the word He has always been with God, and what's more, he has always been God. And in Bethlehem, God prepared a body for the eternal word. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, And the word, capital W, the Lord Jesus Christ, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, we are able to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and we can see the glory of God. Four verses later, in verse 18, it says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared him. This is what Paul would talk about in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 when, when he says who, and of course he's been speaking about Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. In other words, we can't see God, but if you want to know who he is, if you want to know what God is like, what do you got to do, man? Just look at Jesus, right? Paul adds in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 that Christ is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That's why when Philip asked in John chapter 14 and verse 8, Philip says, hey man, show us the Father. 
Show me and the other fellows the Father. And Jesus said in verse 9, Have I been so long with you? And, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Because he is the image of the invisible God. So I think it's very clear that Jesus came in his individual physical body to put on display that he was the image of God. But for us to get our heads wrapped around this whole thing of the image of God biblically, let me just take you on a little journey for a couple of minutes for uh, just a brief overview of this whole thing of the image of God. And I want you to notice, first of all, that man was created to possess it. That is the image of God. He was created to possess it. Do you remember when God prophesied in John chapter 1 and verse 26? He, he prophesies within the Godhead <laughs> that they would make man. Notice verse 26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image. In other words, let, let's pour man into our mold so that when he comes out, he will bear our image. And of course, God fulfilled that prophecy in Genesis chapter 2. But then notice next, man had a very special title because he did. In other words, because he bore the image of God, God gave to him a very special title. And again, it wasn't random. God never does anything random, y'all. And when it seems like he does, it's because we haven't studied it out yet or it hasn't been revealed to us yet. But that title, according to Luke chapter 3 and verse 38, was the Son of of God. Luke chapter 3 is the passage, of course, that takes the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ back to Adam. And it says this in verse 38, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the, you see it? The son of God. And then notice next that man lost it. He lost the image of God in the fall. And, and listen, because he lost the image of God, in effect, he lost this standing as the Son of God. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, God gives Moses, uh, he, he gives us some, some key insight into what actually happened when sin entered into the world. Verse 1 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God, made he him. And then skip down to verse 3. And Adam lived 130 years. Again, this is after the sin in chapter 2. Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness. Listen now. After... God's image. Is that what it says? No, after his image, Adam's image. And it says, and called his name Seth. Okay, and do you realize tonight 
Now, again, this is review for some of you, but if you've never entered into this territory, this is monumental stuff. Do you understand that every person who comes into this world that is born of Adam's seed, which is every single person who has a human father, and every one of us that has a human father that comes from the seed of Adam, we were born into this world just like verse 3 of Genesis 5 says that Seth came into this world. We come into this world after Adam's image. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and of course that was Adam, and death by sin. And of course in the day that Adam ate of it, God said he would die, and in the day that he ate of it, he died spiritually, right? And so death, that spiritual death, passed upon all men. And that's why God can say, for that, all have sinned. And do you understand that this is, this is what necessitated the virgin birth? It's just about time for the advertising to start it, with Christmas and all. And, and we're going to sing about the virgin birth and all of that. Listen, the reason for the virgin birth is because of the spiritual death of sin that was passed through Adam, dating all the way back to when he sinned in the garden. And, and let me just take a second to make sure that we're all connecting the dots. Okay, do you understand that God's original plan in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 was that this planet would be replenished with a race of beings that was called the sons of God. And the reason that he uses the word replenished there is because there was a time in the time before Lucifer fell when this planet was inhabited by a race of beings that were called the sons of God. And because of Lucifer's sin, because iniquity was found in him, God judged that earth and it was submerged in water. And so when he creates that man and he gives to that man that commission to be fruitful and to multiply and replenish the earth. Once again, God chooses his words very, very carefully. And understand this, that, okay, so God's plan was that this earth would be populated or replenished with this race of beings called the sons of God, and just for all the ladies in the room, the term is not actually gender-specific, okay? Uh, uh, wow, we're gonna have to, I'm going to have to work on changing that terminology in this culture. <laughs> but the term has to refer, it refers to all of the people who have the image of God. That's where we're going with this. But what God intended, y'all, from the very beginning when he gave that commission to Adam is he wanted him to replenish this earth through physical reproduction. In other words, that he and his wife would have an intimate relationship 
with each other, and their offspring would be born into this world. And they would, in their very birth, they would be alive spiritually and be born into a relationship with God. And the plan was for Adam and Eve to produce children. And then for their children to grow to maturity so that they could reproduce children and so those children could then grow to maturity and then they could reproduce children while the other children were reproducing children while Adam and Eve were reproducing children and you understand what would have happened multiplication would have happened and it was all to happen through physical reproduction be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth But before Adam and Eve can produce children, what happens? Satan slithers his sorry behind into that garden, and man sins, thrusting the entire human race into sin. And in the Old Testament, y'all, after Adam partook of that fruit, we go for a period of 4,000 years where there wasn't a single person anywhere at any time who bore the image of God on this planet. And thereby, nobody had the right to the title Son of God for 4,000 years. But now listen, after 4,000 years... God was up to something because all of a sudden Jesus Christ came into this world possessing it. He possessed the image of God. We've already looked tonight, but now we might hear it through different ears. Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God we looked at Hebrews 1.3. We might hear it different now. He is the express image of his person. And he comes into this world possessing the image of God. And notice next, Jesus Christ had a very special title because he did. And you, of course, already know what that title is. What was it, y'all? The Son of God. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel explains to Mary what's about to happen. And he says, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also, listen now, that holy thing which shall be born of thee, not Adam, the one that comes from the seed of the woman, a virgin birth, and he shall be called the Son of God of God. And just for the record, let me just mention that this is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 45 and verse 47 that it refers to Christ as the second Adam. And you understand why? It's because Adam as far as humans go was the first to possess the image of God. And the second one on this planet to possess it was the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Okay, so what, what, what is all this about? Why the virgin birth? Why the image of God? Why the title Son of God? 
Why the second Adam? And again, I want to say, ain't none of it random, y'all. It's all answered in this next thing. Listen, Jesus Christ came to restore to man the image of God that was lost in the fall. In Luke 19, in verse 10, Jesus said it himself. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save, watch this now, not those who are lost. Isn't that, isn't that funny? That the King James would screw that English up like that? It didn't mean those who are lost. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about what was lost in the fall. Because what was it that was lost in the fall? It was the image of God. It was spiritual life. It was the relationship with God that God intended for the sons of God to have with him. And Christ came to restore the image of God that was lost in the fall. And that's why John 1 verses 11 and 12 says, He came unto his own, the Jews, and his own received him not. But oh, hallelujah, <laughs> as many as received him. A anybody in this room ever received him? <laughs> but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become not the children of God. He chooses his words very carefully. He gave him power become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. And listen, y'all, now, having our relationship with God restored, having our dead spirits brought to life, and having restored to us the image of God that was lost in the fall, notice next, Jesus Christ commissioned us to do the same. That is, <laughs> he's commissioned us, y'all, to restore to man the image of God that was lost in the fall. <laughs> and you see, this is how we make that connection that we're talking about in tonight's message, that because Christ is the image of God, we, as the body of Christ now, we must embrace an uncompromising priority on biblical discipleship because just like christ did in his physical body he now has us here as his spiritual body to put the image of god on display so that we can restore to man the image of god that was lost in the fall so that the earth can be replenished the race of beings called the sons of God. And just so there's no doubt about how that plays out practically, okay, let's just let's talk like we did last night about what it looks like in real life 
in the, the, the context of the local church when a church is actually embodying the image of God, marks of a local body that embodies the image of God. And here's the first one. In a local body that embodies the image of God, every person is actively pursuing being conformed to the image of God. And we're going to start there. I, I know um, <laughs> we're going to talk about discipleship. But listen, if we are really comprehending that we now as the body of Christ, that we now are to bear the image of God to the world, then listen, if this church and every church in our fellowship, if, if, if these churches are actively are, are embodying the image of God, then every person in that church will be actively pursuing being conformed to the image of the Lord. I, I mean, I hope you're connecting these dots. We have had, listen now, the image of God restored to us so we can show the world what God is like. We are now to make the invisible God visible. People ought to be able to look at us and to look at our church and not see a bunch of people that are all <laughs> sucking life out of each other. But they ought to look at us and be able to see Christ. I mean, isn't that what Romans 8 and verse 29 is actually saying? Paul says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Okay, and here's what he predestinated. Not individuals for salvation. What he predestinated was that those of us in the body of Christ who have received salvation, that we have been predestinated for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Listen, when you, by comparing scripture with scripture, wow, lights start coming on about this whole thing of the image of God. And, and let me just say, my brothers and sisters, if you are here and you're just kind of liking the ride, but you're not allowing God to conform you to his image, man, you are going against everything that your salvation actually was. It's so that we can put Christ on display through our lives. And that's why 1 John 4, 17 says, because as he is, so are we in this world. We're to be like Christ was, y'all. There's no doubt about it. It's why 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6 says, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. He had the image of God, but so do we. That's why in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, John gets to the end of his life, y'all, and he, all of what we've talked about, about the image of God and the title that comes with having that image restored, it's like it all came crashing in on John. The lights came on and he says, Behold, wow, what manner of love 
the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called not the children of God, but that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. And when we are making that known to the world, we're probably gonna get treated just like he did. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And no, it, it, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him. Anybody here have that hope in you? Everybody that has that hope purifieth himself. Even as he is pure. Are you hearing that, my brothers and sisters? We could go on and on with the the verses. I I wanted to take you to Second Corinthians chapter six, verses fourteen, all the way into chapter seven and verse one, but we don't have time for that. But it, I do want you to notice Second uh, Corinthians seven one. He's talking about the promises that we have that God will be not just a God to us and we won't just be his people, but we, he will be a father to us and we'll be his sons and daughters. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit the things we do with our body, the things that we think about doing on the inside of these bodies. Let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And again I say, in a church that embodies the image of God, and every single one of us are in pursuit of that kind of holiness so that we can be conformed to the image of our Savior. And then secondly, in a local body that embodies the image of God, every person is an active participant in carrying out the work of the Lord. Yes, we're actively pursuing being conformed to the image of the Lord, but we're an active participant in carrying out the work of the Lord. And someone says, well, what is the work of the Lord? Well, I'm glad you asked, because we can make this really simple. The work of the Lord is the work that the Lord did when he was here working. You've got to spend a lot of decades in the Bible to be able to come up with a statement like that. The work of the Lord. What would that mean? It's the work the Lord did when he was here working. In John chapter 4 and verse 34, Jesus told his disciples, My meat is to finish his, that is the Father's work. I want to finish his work. And what's interesting is that 
Jesus is praying to the Father the night before his death. Okay, John chapter 4 and verse 34 is the beginning of his ministry. And John chapter 17 and verse 4 is the end of his ministry. And in his prayer to the Father, you know what he says? I have finished the work which thou hast, that thou gavest me to do. And we, of course, have to ask ourselves what work had been finished because at this point in John chapter 17, I, can I remind you that Jesus has not yet gone to the cross? But something was finished by the time he hit John chapter 17 and verse 4, the night before he died. And what Jesus, of course, had finished is he had finished the work of making disciples. And you know how we know that? Not because I wanted that to fit my outline. <laughs> we, we know that by what he goes on in the prayer to tell us that he actually did. <laughs> and, and there are three times in this passage, don't miss this little ditty, where he says, I have. Okay, and what he's telling you is what he did to finish the work of making disciples. So if we want to know what the work of the Lord is, all we got to do is just look at his I have statements. Okay, and what he shows us, this is letter B, the work of the Lord involves three things. First of all, it involves evangelism. And this is, of course, where discipleship begins. In verse 6, he says, I have, here it is, manifested thy name. Okay, listen, in light of what we've heard tonight, in other words, he fully bore the image of God before them. He manifested what God was like. He manifested his name so that he could do what he came to do. What did he come to do? Restore to them the image of God that was lost in the fall, which is a great definition for evangelism. In your notes, evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel that results in a person having restored to them the image of God that was lost in the fall. That's about as simple of definition as I can think of for evangelism. And listen, y'all, that's where discipleship begins. It's certainly not where it ends, though. Number two, it continues with edification. In verse 8, Jesus says, I have, here it comes, I have given them the words showing us, this is in your notes, edification is the process of building the word of God into a disciple's life that results in their spiritual maturity. And then number three, disciple isn't finished until there has been equipping. Jesus said in verse 18, I have sent them into the world and equipping is the preparation of a disciple that results in their being sent into the world for the purpose of reproducing reproducers or for the purpose of making disciples and listen now that's how we the body of christ manifest the image of god listen by living the life and by giving the gospel, which is the beginning place for making disciples. So, First Baptist, 
What do you think? Do you, you want to make disciples? or Is that on your radar? Or would you like to do something else? Well, again, we don't have the luxury of choosing that. If we're here to bear the image of God so that man can have the image of God restored to them that was lost in the fall, <laughs> we got to do it. <laughs> what are your core values, Pastor? Well, I didn't come up with it, but it's expository preaching, man. <laughs> it's biblical discipleship. And then let's quickly look at a third attribute and priority tonight. And that is because Christ is the power of God. We must embrace an uncompromising priority on global missions. Hey, you guys think you might be wanting to get interested in missions? Well, do you want to be biblical? <laughs> do you want to be a church? <laughs> or do you want to just have something that says church out on the shingle? <laughs> because a church, if it's being what God called it to be, is all about global <laughs> missions. And again, let me take just a, a couple of minutes uh, to show you how we get that connection. Let, let's look, first of all, at the manifestation of the power of God through the individual physical body of Christ. Let's see how he was. Okay, in, in the dialogue that the angel ha had with Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 35, I want you to notice that the angel said in verse 35, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. He's talking to Mary. And the power of the highest. Can you imagine the power of the highest? Shall overshadow thee. And from her very womb, in that womb, that body that was prepared for him had the power of God in that body. In, in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1 and verse 24, do you know what, how he's, what he's referred to as? It, it says Christ, look at it, Christ, the power of God. Listen. The power of God is so woven into the fabric of who he is, it's synonymous with his name, Christ, the power of God. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, Peter is talking about how John the Baptist preached. And what John the Baptist preached is how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. And again, there's all kinds of ways the New Testament reveals to us that Christ not only manifested the power of God, but he was literally the embodiment of the power of God. But as you begin to get into the New Testament, what begins to become obvious as we compare Scripture with Scripture is that the real power is the power that would be manifest with everything surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection. Hebrews chapter 2 
in verse verse 14 says for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood he also himself likewise took part of the same he became god in a bob that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil do you hear that listen the devil had the power of death of all things and part of the reason that christ came was so that through his death he might destroy him that had the power of death what does that tell you about the power of christ y'all in john chapter 10 and verse 18 jesus is is speaking here he's talking about his life and he says no man taketh it from me and and do you understand that y'all you know sometimes we get a little teary-eyed and we certainly should anytime we think about the death of christ but the thing that ought to get us teary-eyed is not because of what man was doing to him because man couldn't do jack to him no man taketh it from me but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And if you think that's something, I have power to take it again. The power of life and the power of death. In Romans chapter 1, and verse 4, Paul talked about how Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. But listen, not only is that power manifested through the death, burial, and resurrection itself, but it is manifested through the proclamation of it. Have you ever seen this? And, or has it gotten on your radar in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16? Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, which again is the proclamation of his death, burial, and resurrection. For it is the power of God unto salvation every, to everyone that believeth. Listen, Get the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ out there as often as you can, y'all. Because there's power in that simplicity. You may not have the, a bunch of time with people, but boy, if you could just talk about how Christ was die, he died and was buried and rose again. Yeah, if we had the time, I, I'd love to tell you about and those of you that are old and we're here back in the day remember when i went to india talking to a woman for over an hour and as soon as i articulated the death burial and resurrection yeah i don't want to give you nightmares with what happened freaky It's power, man. The proclamation of the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, for the preaching of the cross, which certainly is his death, burial, and resurrection, is to them that perish foolishness, 
but unto us which are saved. Are you kidding me, man? It, that proclamation is the power of God. And that's why Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5 and said, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. And what I'm trying to get you to see is that biblically Christ is the very power of God. And though that power was manifested through Christ in a zillion different ways, y'all, the greatest demonstration of it was manifested through the power of life and death and his power over life and death, which is the power of the death, burial, and resurrection. And it is so powerful that even the proclamation of it the proclamation of christ's death burial and resurrection manifests the very power of god anywhere and everywhere that it is proclaimed in every single corner of the globe and with that in mind let's talk next about the manifestation of the power of god in the spiritual body of Christ and of course because we now are the body of Christ we would expect that power to be manifest through us in similar fashion and that's why as Paul was beginning to reveal the mystery of the church in the book of Ephesians that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 he prays that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and verse 19 that we would know what is the listen to this the exceeding greatness of his power do you understand that that lingo it's not just great power it's So great power that it exceeds great power. (laughs) He says, according to the working of his mighty power. And what he's talking about here is knowing the power of God that he intends to be manifested in us and through us as Christ's body. He says in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, of the book of Ephesians. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we may ask or think, listen, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church. In other words, May Christ be glorified in his body, the church, through the demonstration of the power that works in it and through it. And it's not our power. It's his power that is demonstrated and manifested, again, in us and through us. And again, it is the power of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, Paul starts talking about the power of the gospel in, in verse 3. 
uh, he's talking about the gospel that we preach in verse 5. And then he says in verses 6 and 7, For God, listen to this, y'all, try to get it in your head. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ and he's letting us know that the same power of God that was manifested in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3 when he said let there be light and there was light he's saying that is the same power that was manifested when he commanded the light of the glorious gospel of Christ to shine in our hearts. And then he says in verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're here to manifest it, but it ain't our power that we're manifesting. It is the power of God in us. We have the power of God in us and listen, through His power that came to us, it was the power of the gospel. And I want you to listen with fresh ears, perhaps, to what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 when He says, But ye shall receive power after that the holy ghost is come upon you okay which happens for us the very instant we respond to the message of the gospel and god's intention is that the moment that the power of the gospel is manifested in us it begins to be manifested through us jesus says but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye, with that power, ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria. Listen to this now. And unto the uttermost part of the earth. And you see, this is why I said at the beginning, because Christ is the power of God, we must embrace an uncompromising priority on global missions. Listen, y'all, as the body of Christ, the church, we have been entrusted with the responsibility of allowing the power of God to be manifested through us from where, according to Acts 1.8, from wherever we are all the way to the uttermost part of the earth. And then let me just briefly mention what that actually looks like in a local body that embodies the power of God to the world. Number one, in a local body that embodies the power of God, every person sees the scope of our mission. Every person sees the scope of our mission. 
and I'm not going to be able to belabor any of these points. Uh, Let's just walk through those next through slides, and here's the scope of our mission, y'all. The angel comes and is talking to the shepherds, and he says, for I bring you good tidings of joy which shall be to all people. Uh, to the uttermost part of the earth. Go on. Look at it again. Which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. He comes down. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And again, this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And you, you can see the references there. You know what they all say? That same thing. And you know what the word all means in the Greek? It means all. And it doesn't mean all the elect. It means all. As in all people. (laughs) Anybody that was born into this world, man, they got the opportunity. And listen, in a body that really gets this thing of the power of God that he put inside of us with the gospel of Christ in our hand that we are to take it to the end of the world. And the way that he designed for his church to function is we all see the scope of it, that our job isn't finished until we have gone into all the world. Next, in a local body that embodies the power of God, every person embraces the responsibility for our mission. The responsibility, and I I love you folks dearly. I love you folks who are watching online, but but let me just tell you, y'all, I don't know many churches where the people actually embrace the responsibility to take the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth. And in a body where it's happening, I fully embrace the fact that I am a steward. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, what Paul says, but as we were allowed of God, listen to this, y'all, to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. And you know why Paul was such a stallion for God, y'all? It is because he saw that the gospel of Christ was a sacred stewardship that has been entrusted to him. Listen, that has not been entrusted to Pastor Jeff and Pastor Troy and all the other great pastors that you have in this church. That entrustment has come to all of us that have the power of God in us. And then next, I I fully embrace that I am a debtor. And oh my goodness, y'all, do we need to begin to embrace this. Do you know why Paul was such a stallion for God? Because he saw himself as a debtor. He says in Romans 1, verse 14, I'm a debtor to everybody. I feel like I owe everybody the opportunity to have the opportunity that I had. And again, it's not given to the pastors. It's given to every individual that comprises the corporate local body of believers. And then next, I fully embrace the fact that I'm a watchman. (laughs) 
and I don't have time to work the passage. Most of you probably know it in Ezekiel chapter 33. What God says is, listen, if you have been entrusted as a watchman and you give people a warning and they reject the warning, they don't heed the warning, their blood is on their own hands. But if you're the watchman and you don't proclaim that message, I'll hold you accountable for their blood. And I want to say to you, my brothers and sisters, we are the watchmen. <laughs> and we got to get to the place to where we really do see that we owe every person on this planet because of the entrustment of the gospel, we owe every single person on this planet an invitation and a warning. We've got to embrace the responsibility for the gospel. In a local body that embodies the power of God, every person feels the urgency of our mission. I, I mean, I wish that every church in the Living Faith Fellowship, I wish every single one of us would begin to feel the urgency of this thing. Jesus said in John chapter 4 and verse 35, Say not ye, and, and, and he's, I, I read this wrong for a lot of years. He's not, don't say this. That's not what he, it's not a command. It's, he, he's saying, isn't this what you say? Say ye not, there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. We're always going to get to it sometime in about four months from now or so. Yeah, after I this, I'm going to that. And I'm going to get serious about this thing after whatever. The kids are grown. After I visit the grandkids for the 50th time. I, he's, I say, and do you lift up your eyes? Because they're white already to harvest. And when the fields are white, you better get that harvest in. Because there's urgency to that thing, man. Number four, in a local body that embodies the power of God, every person understands the privilege of our mission. Listen, y'all. Yeah, we got to feel the responsibility and we got to see it as an entrustment. But if that's all we do, we're missing the point. That same verse we just looked at a minute ago, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, I, I just read over the first part of it for fun. <laughs> But he says, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. Listen, if the gospel is a weight to you, oh, we got to carry out this. You, you missed the point. You don't get it yet. We get to do this, y'all. He could have used rocks to give the message. But people who have been affected by the power of God have the power of God in them and they can't wait to get the declaration and proclamation of that message out their mouth <laughs> so that other people have the glorious privilege of knowing the God that we know. And then in a local body that embodies the power of God, every person relies upon our empowering for our mission. In Matthew chapter 28, you know, usually when we're giving the Great Commission, we go to verse 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations and 
We start talking about the key words here. You know, the teach all nations and go and baptize and teach and, you know, we do all of that. Those are key words. But let me tell you, most important word in there in verse 19 is the word therefore. And you know what the word therefore is there for? It takes us back to verse 18 where Jesus says, all what, y'all? Power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye, therefore. I got the power. And so just go and rely on the power of God that I am entrusting to you. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you remember, we, we looked at this verse a, a second ago. All, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost can come upon you, and we're going to be witnesses. Uh, look at this, to the uttermost part of the earth. Do you understand there's never been a generation of people that had the privilege of doing that like we do? And yet, do you realize that we're doing it worse in the 21st century than they did in the first? There's this little 1-8 principle that I want to end with. Acts 1-8, you'll receive power, and you'll have the power to take the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth. Would you look with me next at Romans chapter 1 and verse 8? First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout all of Rome. That's, I, you might expect that. But for real, the whole world. And again, this, we're back to the scope of this thing. All the people. The whole world. And God says, I'm, you got my power. So take it, man. And impact the whole world. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia, Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. I think they're just exaggerating that. Whole world in the first century, every place in the first century. Yeah. You know why? Because they relied on the power of God. And that power was given to us so that we can impact this entire globe with the mission that's been entrusted to us. Let's pray together. And Lord, I, I pray <laughs> that we will bear the image of God to the world. And we will manifest the power of God to the world. Help this church, all of the churches in the Living Faith Fellowship, to be this kind of body of believers. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Craigslist. 